Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. With shoppers buying everything online these days, getting those holiday gifts for family and friends is going to be harder than ever. But no need to worry because our friends at Seattle Shirt Company have got us covered. Jay and the team have an unbelievable selection of NFL and NBA jerseys for everyone on your list. These jerseys are 100% authentic, from current superstars like LeBron James to the all-time legends like Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Walter Payton. Seattle Shirt Company has it all. And right now, for our listeners, we have a special one-time only pre-Black Friday Cyber Monday deal. Everything you buy at seattleshirt.com is 30% off. So head to seattleshirt.com and enter the code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout for 30% off your entire order. Shipping is always free. Seattle Shirt Company, helping you get ready for the holidays a little bit early. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to another episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Conversations typically in the world of basketball with experts. Today's is an expert in the world of college basketball, a tremendous college basketball coach starting his 11th season in Boulder at Colorado. He's done a really nice job of keeping the Buffaloes around the NCAA tournament over the last few years. Thought his team had a chance to be a surprise in the NCAA tournament this year before the COVID-19 pandemic canceled the hoop season. Coach Tad Boyle. Coach, how's life in Boulder now that you guys have started practice and games are finally on the horizon? It's good, Dan. Um, You know, thank goodness we're able to go five on five now. It was a very uh, untypical uh, fall uh, in terms of what our players were able to do. We, you know, overcame two 14-day quarantines for partial Uh, pieces of our team. We had a situation in Boulder County where we had an outbreak. And so uh, there was an order where our guys could only work out in groups of one or two for about 14 other days. So it's really been difficult, you know, just playing one-on-one or two-on-two or certainly any five-on-five. There's been no pickup uh, leading up to practice, which is, as you remember, those are some of the best, you know, uh, games you could play where the pickup games in the fall as you, as you got ready for practice in the season. So you know, our players are minus all that. And uh, so now that practice has started, we're having to catch up a little bit, quite frankly, than, than what we normally would do. But uh, all good now that we're, we're all healthy and, and able to go full, full go. I've talked to a number of other college coaches uh, for this ISO podcast, and I've asked them how they have stayed creative in the preseason practices, but also how they maybe – have improved as a coach because there's been more downtime than you probably ever have had in your coaching career? Well, I think, yeah, creativity is, is one piece. The other, the other piece is just being nimble, you know, being able to adjust. And again, we were able to go, you know, working out in groups of six or seven and working out in groups of one or two. And, and I think that's really where your staff comes in. You know, I've got a tremendous 
coaching staff here at Colorado. Mike Rohn has been with us uh, for the entire 10 years, going into year 11 with us. Uh, Bill Greer, who you know, uh, an ex-Zag uh, coach, uh, is going into year five. Rick Ray is a new member of our staff, but he was a head coach at Mississippi State and most recently at Southeast Missouri State. So two two coaches who have had head coaching experience on my staff and then, and then Mike Rohn, who could be head coach tomorrow if, if given the opportunity. So, you know, having coaches like that that are able to adjust and, and, and go on the fly has been key. Well, you've mentioned a couple coaches on your staff that have been head coaches, other guys that you feel are ready. I know Rodney Billups was on your staff recently until he took over at Denver. You were an assistant yourself. I'm sure that you have a lot of pride when your assistants uh, get that opportunity to, to be mentioned as a potential uh, candidate as a head coach. At what point do you feel that they are ready and how do you encourage them to go about that? Because I'm sure as a head coach running a program, there's a fine line of wanting your coaches to be aspirational, but also keeping both foot in the program that they're a part of at that current time. Yeah, Dan, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I view it much like I view our players. And, you know, you've got certain players in your program that they might be program guys or they might be guys that um, you know are going to be there the entire four years. Uh, and then you've got some, some guys that, that may be ready to move on uh, to the next level after year one or two or three. And I think from a coaching standpoint, it's my job to develop – our players, obviously, for playing at the next level. But it's also my job as a coach to prepare our coaches to go to the next level, which is being a head coach. And so uh, I take that very seriously. I have conversations with each and every one of our guys um, that uh, – and, look, most assistant coaches want to be head coaches. I mentioned Rick Ray. I mentioned Bill Greer. They've already been there, done that. So my conversations with them are a little bit different. Hey – where are you in terms of your comfort level? Uh, obviously, a lot, of that, a lot of that has to do with their families and where they're at, living in Boulder versus wanting another opportunity somewhere else. Those are conversations that we have certainly every spring and, and, and leading up to the spring when, when coaching changes happen. I do know Mike Rohn wants to be a head coach, deserves to be a head coach, and I'm trying to do everything I can to provide that opportunity uh, obviously, I'm not the one making hires. You know, uh, I'm the one trying to convince people to make hires. But you mentioned Rodney Billups. Uh, you know, we've we've had some guys that have moved on. John Prelo is now at San Jose State. Uh, Kim English moved on. He's going to be a head coach. He's at the University of Tennessee now as an assistant. Anthony Coleman is at Arizona State. He was on our staff. I think he'll be a head coach someday. So it's it's my job to help prepare our coaches to be head coaches, just like it's my job to prepare our players, you know, to be professional players when they move on from here. You mentioned getting your players, or excuse me, your coaches ready for when their opportunities are going to come. You took a little bit of a different path to becoming a coach at the college level. Uh, can you share a little bit about what your career was like after you finished playing as a, as a Kansas Jayhawk that led you a different path but eventually became a tremendous college coach? Yeah, you know, Dan, I always say I kind of backed – I came in through the back door or the side door of, of coaching. I didn't come through the front door. Most, most guys, when they're done playing, as you know, they become a GA or they hook on as a volunteer somewhere or they, you know, 
they just kind of uh, start from the from the bottom and move their way up. You know, usually in their twenties. Um, I, I got my degree in business from the University of Kansas. I, I got into the investment advising business uh, right outside of, right out uh, after school, and uh, I worked in Greeley, Colorado, which is my hometown. I actually got moved to Boulder a year later. And I started coaching high school basketball on the side. And in Colorado, you know, the stock market closes at 2, two o'clock in the afternoon. So I could be in the gym at 3 or 3.30 with, with the high school team that I was helping coach. I started out as a sophomore coach. Um, then I went to be a JV coach. Then I became, you know, a head coach for three years at the high school level. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to get to the college level. Um, what, one of the impetuses for that um, was I was a fatal car accident. Uh, in my late twenties and it really kind of changed my perspective on life. You know, I always thought, Hey, uh, be in the investment business, make a lot of money, coach high school basketball inside. That's, that's a, that's a great way to go. But what I found Dan is that I loved coaching basketball. I liked the investment business, but I loved coaching basketball. So when that car accident happened and I, I realized, you know, life can be over, at the, at the at the snap of a finger or the blink of the eye, um, you know, I, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this coaching thing. And I, I got a job at the university of Oregon as an assistant, making $16,000 a year back in the restricted earning days. And uh, it's led me back to Boulder, Colorado, you know, 20 some years later. So I'm very fortunate, but uh, a lot of stops along the way. Uh, I paid my dues, but I, I've been very, very lucky. Yeah, that's one thing that probably persuaded me not to get into coaching is the constant moves. I had that as a player. That's something that that anybody getting into coaching has to really consider and know that unless you get to a a unbelievably stable program, you're probably going to be moving around for a while. But you mentioned the passion of coaching and some of the coaches at the high school level that I've come across with my work with SB Live and different things. Um, some of the, those coaches are the most passionate about the game of basketball and most knowledgeable um, that, that you could imagine. When you're out recruiting a player, uh, how, because of your high school background coaching, how much do you value the high school coach's opinion versus the AAU, or do you try to kind of get a nice combination of the two? Because I, I think it's important. I'm, I can only imagine it's important to hear both. It is. It is. And, and, and as you know, Dan, the AAU basketball culture has kind of taken over uh, in terms of how kids are recruited and, and what goes on in the summer and even the spring now uh, has dis, uh, disincentivized sometimes kids in their high school basketball experience, which I think is sad because to me, it's that's that's the purest level of basketball is playing for your high school team, your team you grew up in and you're in your city but even now you see kids you know they're moving high schools they're moving from one city to another city they're moving from their high school team to a prep school team and it's a little bit sad to me because as a high former high school coach I just know you know the pride that I felt in in coaching those kids and seeing them as sixth seventh and eighth graders are coming to your camps and then by the time they're juniors or seniors they're playing and uh, there's something so pure about high school basketball that I love, but I also understand, you know, there's good AAU coaches as well, but I've learned a lot from high school basketball coaches going to their practices when I'm recruiting their players. And, and, you know, we don't get a chance to go to AAU practices. We go to AAU games. With that being said, 
you know, there's some AAU coaches who really do a great job of running good stuff offensively, guys that have good defensive schemes. Um, and uh, so you, you just try to keep picking and choosing from the, the coaches you come across. And uh, the one thing about coaching, you know, Dan, I can tell you this, I've never had an original thought in my life. Everything that I do, I either learn from coaches I coached with or played for, or I've stolen from coaches along the way. Yeah, that's so true. And, and there's uh, a number of coaches that I've asked this, this question I'm about to pose to you is, in the middle of a season, you're, you're focused on your team and, and your staff typically watches film in, in a very similar manner that you would watch it. Is there an outside group of coaches at the college rank or maybe in the professional rank if they have time that you value their opinion if they get a chance to watch some of your games to give you a different look for your team and what might work or help? No, that's a great question. I, I'll, I'll Let me start by saying with our staff. So there's some coaches um, that they want to watch film with their staff. Uh, and I've st- – I've a few years ago decided that was not the best thing because again, I I mentioned my staff before I've got great coaches, great basketball minds. What happens is you get in a room and you start watching film together. Usually the head coach kind of takes control or their opinion might dominate uh, or snub out an assistant coach who might have a great thought or idea because it's just group dynamics. It's just the nature of, of, of the beast. What I want after a game or even right now after a practice is, guys, we're in a technology world. We all got our practice of the game on our computer. You go home and watch it. I'm going to go home and watch it. Take your notes. Let's come in tomorrow and talk about what we saw. And I want outside opinions. And I want my staff to feel empowered to give me their thoughts uh, rather than sitting there listening to my thoughts, if that makes sense. And the second part of your question, are there outside coaches? Absolutely. You know, I played for Larry Brown. And Larry Brown was most recently the coach at SMU a few years ago, but he's been out of coaching now for a couple years. I, he watches more basketball, you know, in a night than, than I may watch in a week because uh, he's just glued to the TV. So I ask him to watch our team, and I get his feedback. You know, uh, there's guys that are friends of mine, you know, that – uh, I value their opinion. I'll say, hey, I'll watch your team. You watch my team. We don't play each other this year. We're not in the same league. Let's let's share thoughts on each other. We we used to have these closed scrimmages. We're not going to be able to have them this year due to COVID. But you had a closed scrimmage with somebody. And, you know, I did this with Coach Rice, who you know, Boise State. But when we had scrimmaged them a few years back, he would have his assistants do a scouting report on Colorado and let me sit in on it. You know, so I could hear what Boise State is thinking about Colorado. Um, I would do the same – our assistants would do the same thing for him at Boise. We would give him a scatter report on his team. So, you know, getting those outside thoughts and opinions, to me, is nothing but helpful. You mentioned Larry Brown, and you had played for him at Kansas. Uh, I interviewed Danny Manning for this same podcast uh, a month or so back, and – when I kind of went back and looked at the timeline of Kansas, you were a senior captain his freshman year. Yeah. They went on to win a championship a few years later. I can only imagine as a former teammate or an alum of Kansas, how much pride that you had for Kansas to win that championship. 
did you sense Danny Manning was going to become as good a player as he was becoming, you know, uh, leading them to a title and then becoming the number one pick in the draft uh, later that year? Yeah, you know, Dan, it's interesting. I remember the first time I heard about Danny, Coach Brown was coaching us at Kansas, and he was telling us about this kid in North Carolina because Danny grew up in North Carolina and then moved to Lawrence when, when Coach Brown hired his dad. And he told me even before that happened, like, wait till you see this kid. He's special. And then I obviously got a chance to watch Danny his senior year at Lawrence High, and then I got a chance to play with him, you know, my last year at Kansas. I knew how special of a player he was. I did not know he was going to be the first pick in the draft. I did not know he was going to lead, you know, Kansas to a, a national championship three years later. Um, but, you know, one of, one of my greatest, you know, prideful moments probably as a player is playing with Danny. Um, one of my most disappointing, you know, moments was not being a part of the 86 Final Four team when I graduated in 85 and certainly the 88 championship team three years later. But uh, I always tell people I was the only senior on the 85 team, so they got rid of their dead weight, and it was, it was nothing but, you know, brighter days ahead for the Jayhawks. So, but uh, it, was, it was great playing with Danny. He was a special, special player. Yeah, well, I, I can only imagine the pride that you have for them winning that title because my Gonzaga Bulldogs made it to the Final Four and there was, you know, 60, 70 of us former players there pulling for them where, uh, unfortunately, they lost to North Carolina in the title game in, in 2017. But the pride of your school um, is something that I think is so special at a number of big programs across the country. How do you? Yeah, no, Dan. I just I don't want to interrupt you there, but I would just say you know I was there when when the Zags went to that Final Four, and I saw a lot all the former players that you're talking about, you know, because obviously I'm close with Coach Few and that and that program, and and you're right, the the collective pride that you have, and and that's one thing I don't think fans always realize is how difficult it is to get there. You played on some great Gonzaga teams, you know. I played on a couple really good Kansas teams. We got one one game in and before we got beat, and then the next year they get to the Final Four. Like, you just never know when that run is going to happen. But when it does happen, all the former players uh, have such a collective pride, and that's that's really what's special about, you know, big-time college basketball. Yeah, I remember uh, that Final Four, and I, I did – See, I believe I saw you or I i know I ran into Coach Jack Letty and Leon Rice and Billy Greer, all the other guys that are really connected to Coach Few uh, were there that weekend. Um, and then, so that was great to see us former players, but then friends within the coaching fraternity of Coach Few really supporting uh, his opportunity in the national championship. When you look at getting back into the basketball world and starting your coaching career at Oregon, there's been a number of, of really good coaches that started at Oregon around the same time frame as you. Mark Turgeon, Leon Rice, Billy Greer, Mark Few, and yourself. What was it about that Oregon campus? Was it Don Munson? What was it that kind of really put, propelled you guys in the right direction? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it starts with Coach Munson, obviously his son Dan, and then, you know, who, who was the coach of Gonzaga, obviously Mark Few, Leon, you mentioned all those guys, and they're, uh, you know, he, I think he touched them. In, in a, in, and then, you know, for, for Coach Turgeon and I, Jerry Green was head coach. He brought Coach Turgeon along. Coach Turgeon kind of got me involved. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting. And, you know, and, and not just basketball coaches, uh, Dan, you look at college administrators – um, athletic directors, you know, when I was uh, an assistant at Oregon, I was only there three years, 
you know, I worked with Greg Byrne, who's now the AD at Alabama, Dave Hickey's the AD at Arizona, Renee Baumgartner's the AD at Santa Clara, Jim Barco was, uh, was the AD at Fresno State um, a few years ago. So even the administrators at, at, at Oregon really moved on to bigger and better things, as well as some of the basketball coaches that touched that program. Yeah, I'm, I'm just throwing this out there, and you don't have to have a comment, but it might be a little bit of that Nike connection where Nike's <laughs> been at the forefront of the revolution with athletic footwear, and that thinking might have kind of propelled a lot of people that are intertwined with Nike and the University of Oregon to kind of really think outside the box. Well, the one thing I can tell you, you know, as a former Oregon employee and, and, and again, a uh, guy that was there for three years, the – uh, the loyalty and the, you know, the, the way you feel about Nike and that company and, and, and the investment that they made, not only in that program, but certainly, you know, Colorado, uh, where I coach now, was one of the original, you know, Nike schools. And so the pride I feel in, in being associated with Nike is certainly there. And I think you're right. I think uh, Nike has a lot to do with the success of Oregon and maybe some of their uh, former uh players, coaches, administrators, uh, certainly the investment. And I was right there kind of on the cusp. I mean, it was – Nike had not made a major – they had made an investment in Oregon, but not in the way that they have here recently that has kind of taken them to new heights again with their football team, you know, becoming nationally. I was still there when their football team was kind of form, forming their success and, and basketball the same way. Obviously, Coach Altman's gotten to, to a Final Four, so – uh, Oregon's a special place. There's no doubt about it. And, and Nike has a lot to do with that. When you took over at Colorado, I believe it was the last year in the Big 12, Colorado moved to the Pac-12, one of the other power conferences. It's essentially a facilities and arms race across college athletics. And I think that's great. But I miss a lot of the older facilities um, that I grew up watching on college ba basketball Saturdays, occasionally getting a chance to go to games. The favorite, my favorite arena that I've ever been in at the college level outside of Gonzaga's old kennel would have been MacArthur Court in, at the University oh, yeah. of Oregon. My freshman and sophomore year at University of Washington, we got to play there, uh, which was a great experience. But the first time I was there, it was Cal with Jason Kidd as a freshman at Oregon. And that place was as loud a college atmosphere that I've ever been in. And the place was rocking and you thought the, 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 the scoreboard was going to fall down from the ceiling. Yeah. What type of memories do you have of MacArthur Court and how does it stack up with Allen Fieldhouse? Well, Matt Court's a special place, you know, and it's funny. When I was at Oregon, there was some discussions that it kind of out – uh, outlived its use, so to speak. And uh, there were some coaches that felt like it was a recruiting detriment. Uh, I, quite frankly, I felt just the opposite. I thought Matt Court, and I've played and coached. I haven't played in Matt Court. I've coached in Matt Court, both on the Oregon sideline and opposing sidelines. I've also uh, coached in their new arena, Matthew Knight Arena. And it's a beautiful facility, don't get me wrong. But there's nothing like Matt Court. There's nothing like Allen Fieldhouse. I, I go back, Dan, to the Big Eight days. That's how old I am. I played at Kansas when it was the Big Eight, not the Big 12. And, you know, you've got at K-State, you got Bramlage Coliseum. It is not the same thing as Ahern Fieldhouse. I played in Ahern Fieldhouse. Uh, the arena at Oklahoma State has been – they popped the top. They made it much bigger. It's the arms race you're talking about. 
But I'm telling you, some of the venues in the old Big 8, MacArthur Court, you know, in the Pac-12, uh, there's nothing like them. And that's one of the things I enjoy about coaching at Colorado. I talked to former players who played in the old Balsh Fieldhouse here in Colorado before we built the CU Event Center, which is now 40 years old. There's still people that remember those days. Wilt Chamberlain playing in Balsh Fieldhouse. You know, the popcorn smell and the uh, – it's it was just a, an unbelievable atmosphere. And 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 some of the new arenas are nice and shiny and they're, they've, they're part of the arms race you're talking about, but there's a lot that is missed from those old arenas and the, and the atmospheres that, that they uh, – allowed players to play in front of you mentioned at the start of our conversation where you've had to get creative with practices because of limited numbers uh waiting for the the start of official practice which as we record this it just started a day or two ago um you've got games finally scheduled to look like beginning at the end of november what's the outlook for Colorado this season. I know Taylor Bay is left uh, for the NBA draft, but you've got a tremendous point guard in McKinley Wright, the fourth. Uh, where are you most excited about this team and seeing the improvement before games start? Well, I'm excited for two reasons. I'm excited about the guys we got coming back. You mentioned Tyler Bay's off to the NBA. We wish him the best, and I can't wait to see what happens when the draft comes around here in November. Um, but the returning players that we have, uh, you mentioned McKinley. we got Evan Batty. Dallas Walton's a seven-footer that's kind of back now uh, full strength after three ACLs. Um, Deshaun Schwartz is a guy that, you know, uh, I think can have a breakout senior year. We've, so we've got some really good veteran players, Maddox Daniels, Eli Parquet. I mean, the list goes on. But we also have a really talented group of freshmen, Dan. We redshirted a kid, Keyshawn Bartholomew, last year who's a freshman who's going to be able to take some pressure off McKinley in the backcourt, play with the ball in his hands, get McKinley off the ball a little bit. we got four true freshmen that are really, really talented that with the 2020 class we have coming in are, is going to be kind of the, the, the core of Colorado basketball for years ahead. But this year's team, in my mind, is an NCAA tournament team. One of the reasons the non-conference schedule is so important for us is we have to go out and prove that. You know, we are not at the tip of everybody's tongue when they talk about, you know, NCAA tournament teams. We have to prove that. We have The only way you do that is in non-conference play and certainly in league play. And uh, I can just tell you the Buffaloes, we're, we're chomping at the bit. And we want a piece of, you know, anybody we can get. We only get seven non-conference games this year uh, rather than the normal 13. So got to make the most of those. And then obviously we got 20 league games now in the Pac-12 uh, this year versus the usual 18. So uh, we, can't we can't wait to get, to get going. Well, I'm looking forward to following uh, the, the Pac-12 and the Colorado season. I, it sounds like the future is bright not only for this year, but in coming years with the roster description that you gave. Coach, I really appreciate you joining today. I wish you guys in Colorado nothing but the best of luck this season. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you. Thanks all you're doing for the game. Absolutely. That was today's guest, Tad Boyle, head coach of the Colorado Buffaloes for the ISO and SB Live. I'm Dan Dickow. The ISO with Dan Dickow in SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network.
the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.